Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you are just heading into work or about to move on with your day, you can still hear today's full edition of Detroit Today. All you have to do is go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today, and then you can listen to the show whenever or wherever you choose. All right. Uh, There have been several cases of violence against police officers in Detroit in recent weeks, including eight officers in the city who were shot and wounded or killed in the past eight months. The job of a police officer, of course, comes with inherent danger, and sometimes that danger is deadly. But what does a spate of violence against officers do to a department, to individual morale, or to a city's or a state's ability to recruit new officers. A bit later in the program, we're going to talk as well about what warrants deadly force by police officers on civilians, especially in light of the shooting death of an apparently innocent Texas teenager by a police officer. That, of course, unfolds in the context of an ongoing national issue of black men in particular being uh, harmed or killed uh, by police officers when they're not doing anything. But first today, we want to talk about the danger that police officers face every day and how it impacts a person's ability to do their job. And joining us to lead that discussion is Tony Holt. He is the chief of Wayne State Police right here in Midtown Detroit. Tony, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so this idea that uh, that you could be killed in the line of duty is something that everyone who decides to be a police officer, has to wrap their minds around, of course, before they go on that first patrol. At the same time, when it happens, it's a shock. It's a shock to the community that it happens in. It's a shock, I'm sure, to the officers uh, who serve with the officer who's killed. And we are seeing, for whatever reason here in Detroit, uh, an escalation, at least, of of, of these these incidents in the last few months that I think we're all taking note of, and I think nobody knows quite what to make of it. And you're, you're exactly right. Uh, it's a very unusual circumstances now. Uh, to piggyback on what you said at first, all officers coming onto the jobs as part of the training, you know that inherent danger exists when you take that job. But the realization... Once you see these recent spate of shootings and the death of officers, it really hits you smack in the face. This is really real. Yeah. Even though you're trained for it, you're nearly never prepared for that. And what does it do? Give us an idea of what the reaction is in a department when when something like this happens. I mean, police officers work very closely together. Uh, I think they think of themselves uh, very much as – Uh, a team as a unit. And so when an officer is shot and killed, as happened uh, with uh, Wayne State Police Officer Colin Rose, uh, for instance, talk about what that does inside the department, what the reaction looks like. Well, the hurt is felt throughout the department. Not only if, if it's one of your own officers, but if an officer in another state, even another country that you don't even know. Uh, I said, I read years ago that officer who is shot or killed in New England, you fill in right here in Detroit. Yeah. And it puts the morale down, but what it does, it sends an alert. It puts your caution level up, and you realize that every person you talk to, every car you stop, that potential danger is right there. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, when when Officer Rose was killed, talk about the 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 response, your response to it with those officers in terms of well, here's how we here's how we meet this kind of tragedy and the emotions that that surround it. Well, you you have to get the emotions out. It has to be discussed. And in our case, we we had to bring counselors in, and we had to talk to the officers. We had to go over our procedures. And you have to reinforce this is a team. We lost one of our own. We have together together as a family and a team to get through this type of incident. Yeah. And we're still not over it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, w- before the show, we were talking, and you were talking about uh, the caution that that has to attend this kind of thing, too, on your part. In other words, this idea of over-response to the danger that police officers face is, is a concern as well. And that is a real, real concern. Uh, we don't want to take a step backwards in time where when a police officer was injured or shot, it's an all-out war on the public in terms of response where every single person is a suspect. We still have to take into consideration our training, that professionalism, that we stir the citizen. And everybody is not guilty. Yeah, uh, we have to be very, very cautious. We have to go over our procedures, but at the same time, we can't have an overreaction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Tony Holt. He is the chief of the Wayne State Police Department. We are talking about the danger that police officers face on a daily basis, a danger that they all sign up for. But when that danger becomes reality in the form of violence against police, killings of police officers, shootings of police officers, uh, it always catches not only the officers off guard, uh, but it catches the community off guard. And there is a response to those things. We are in the middle of a spate of these kinds of incidents here, right here in the city of Detroit. In the past eight months, uh, eight officers have been shot. That's an unusual number. Is there something going on in the community uh, that's fueling that? Is there something uh, that we're not seeing that is helping to contribute to that violence. Uh, give us a call if you want to hear, uh, if you want to join the conversation here. Uh, talk to us about this this spate of violence against police officers. What do you think is, uh, what do you think it's reflecting here in the city of Detroit? What do you think uh, the police ought to be doing to try to to try to minimize that uh, a little later in the show. As I said up front, we're going to talk with Carl Taylor, professor of sociology at Michigan State University, about the flip side of this equation, uh, the instances where police uh, are the danger in communities to some people, uh, the number of black men in particular who have been uh, shot or killed by police around the country in the last few years, I think is getting a lot of attention. We had a recent incident in Texas with a young man, a young black man who was unarmed, uh, shot and killed by police while he was trying to pull away from them. Uh, but right now what we're talking about is uh, the danger that police officers themselves face and uh, what that means, what that looks like in the city of Detroit. 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. That's 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Chief Holt, uh, I, I wonder if 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 
one of the things on your mind is the upcoming summer here in uh, Detroit and what that could mean for the intensity of uh, these incidents that uh, we always see crime of, of certain stripes increase when the weather's hot, when people are outside more, when people are more in contact with one another. Is there something about uh, this summer coming up that's got you particularly concerned for your office? You know, I, I, don't, I really don't want to say it's just because of the summer coming up. I am concerned because of the recent spate of shooting. And we know in the summertime we'll have more people out. It'll be more festive activities going on, and there'll probably be more alcohol consumption, and that always is a concern. Uh, but what we have in Detroit, which I think is sort of unusual that we don't have in a lot of other communities, is that community support for the police here. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't want to speak specifically uh, about Detroit police, but they have a lot of community programs when the community is involved. When you look at Wayne State, with the recent death of our officer being killed, Sergeant Colin Rose, the outpouring of some community support was something I have never seen before. And uh, when you see that kind of community support where groups of neighborhoods, the Woodbridge, the Medical Center, uh, areas of Detroit that we don't even patrol come forward, offer condolences, uh, financial support. When you see that, that sort of validates that you're in the right direction that uh, the, the mission and purpose that you're doing out here has value. Yeah, That goes a long way to helping officers get closure in terms of what they're doing right now. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that has characterized at least some of the recent shootings of police uh, is this idea of almost an ambush-style uh, attack on the police where there's a call for service and the police show up and somebody somebody shoots an officer uh, the most recent incident, I think, was was an example of that. Uh, talk about how that's different from what you typically see with people or the, the concerns that people have about uh, people uh, attacking the police. That's a different kind of context. Yeah, this, this brings a whole new different category to how we respond and calls for services. And in the past, or the shootings prior to the last two, it's more of a confrontational style shooting. Officers are stopping a car to investigate. They're doing an individual investigation on the street, and it, it's sort of exposed from there. The recent shootings are, are, are requests for service that the officers are responding to. Yeah. Uh, they're responding to a call of a domestic violence or a possible break-in, and they're trying to gain entry, and they're trying to respond to that, and they met with a hell of gunfire. And and so because those are the circumstances and that, that seems particularly random, wh- what does that say to us about what we need to do in this community to, to stop that from happening? Well, you know, it has to be more into the discussion. We have to talk about the violence. Uh, we, we have to talk about the conditions that people live, which brings on this sort of type of violence. Uh, for example, in the one uh, case where the officers were shot knocking on the door before they approached the door. The young man stated he was a victim of several break-ins and he thought that they were breaking in. He him thought now. the police were, were burglars. Burglars, and he reacted right away. And the, the availability of weapons out there is, is a big concern. Uh, we don't know what the last shooting, of course, that's a Detroit case, why the officers were met with gunfire right away. Yeah. And, you know, we have these people sort of 
living in some some instances the fear of <laughs> being damaged themselves, and so this is their response to it. I'm going to shoot first. I'm going to ask questions later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the and, and we should be clear: the law does not really allow you to do that. I mean, no, it does not. It, 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 it permits you to have a weapon. Yeah. You can have a weapon in your home. You can defend your home. In fact, against an invader, you cannot, however, answer the door. With with gunshots, yeah, you, not only you you could open carry, you could have a CCW permit, but that does not give you the reason or the justification to just start shooting. It doesn't give you the justification if you're a minor accident, somebody cuts you off the road, that is standing getting out the car discussing it. You're going to get out the car and now weapons are going to be drawn. Yeah, and there's a there's too much of that kind of response here in in Detroit for sure. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. My guest is Tony Holt, chief of the Wayne State Police. We are talking about uh, the danger that police officers face here in the city of Detroit, danger that has been uh, on uh, rather tragic display in the recent uh, in the recent months. Uh, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDT Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Let's go to Dolores in Detroit. Dolores, welcome to Detroit Today. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Certainly. Uh, I have a particular interest in knowing I live in Detroit, and I was disappointed uh, when police officers no longer had to live in the city. Sure. I, I just really would love to know what kind of specific training uh, police officers get that relate to understanding the black community, uh, and and uh, alternately, black officers understanding the white officers, uh, where they're coming from and their thinking. I, I just think that that's so important that they, there's an understanding there. Could I get a specific kind of curriculum uh, that that happens in the training? Yeah, that's a Dolores. That's a great question. Uh, and and what you're referencing there is one of the I think nagging problems we have. Uh, in the state of Michigan, which is that the Supreme Court here has has ruled that uh, residency requirements uh, are unconstitutional. So you don't have to live in the community that you police. I think that is the ideal circumstance for uh, for policing. But in the absence of that requirement, what do we do to make sure that uh, the people who are policing the community actually understand the community they're policing? Uh, Chief Holt, talk about how that works. Yeah, I think also that is an excellent question and it's an excellent observation. Uh, I think the key is that it starts at the very beginning. It starts with the recruiting. You have to be very specific. You have to be involved in the recruiting process, interview process of who wants to become a police officer, why they want to become a police officer, and from there, all police officers go to a police academy where there's a curriculum or diversity, uh, community relations. But that eight or 12 hours or 20 hours, it's not going to be enough. Right. Uh, what you have to do is you have to reinforce that training once that officer's on the job. For example, once you finish the academy and we hire you, then you go through a really intensive 16-week training progress, in-house program where we have you ride with officers. And the key, what we're going to do with that program is we want to try to have you understand that you have to have a stake in the community. We have to make you understand that the people you serve, if you don't live here, have been here. Yeah. Uh, you, you take Midtown now. If we get a call where we have someone hanging on a corner, you have to look 
that person's been hanging on a corner for 40, 50 years. You just got here. <laughs> right, they, right. They have a stake in the community, and you have to make them understand that and feel that. Race is always the ele- elephant in the room that we really don't sure. want to face and we really don't want to discuss, but we have to do that. Yeah, yeah. That is a necessary. Uh, w- would it be easier if it were required for officers to live in the community that they police? Do you believe that that would be a better policy? I believe that at times they could have a stake in the community if they live in the community. I think, um, for example, I remember talking to Sheriff Benny Napoleon. He says, you know, everybody in the neighborhood know who I am and where I live. They'll put notes in my mailbox. Right. And it's, it's probably a greater sense of community. But at the same time, uh, the officers have families. Uh, they're concerned about their safety. They're concerned about the educational process in the city if they have kids. So it's, it's a big question on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dolores, thank you very much uh, again for the call and for injecting that into our conversation here. Let's go to Cassandra in Detroit. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, My concern is that with the police, a couple of years ago, I was sitting in my front window and I watched a young man who lives in my neighborhood go down the street, him and another fella, and they had a bag in their hand. And it was on a Sunday, and I didn't know about the laws about drinking, but the bag, he, they just had a bag and walking down the street. I watched two white police officers pull up to these men, these young men. The officers didn't apparently didn't know I was sitting in the window, and I watched them harass these young men. They took the bag from them and the bottle. The bottle was not open, but it had I not at that point came out of my front door and sat on the porch, I'm concerned <laughs> what would have happened to them. Yeah. Another time I was in the car with my son. The police officer probably didn't realize I was an older woman in the car with him, but he stopped him, when, and my son had said to me, watch him stop me. We got to the corner at the stoplight, and we stopped at the stop sign. Did not the officer make a whip turn and come back and follow him and harassed him? Yeah. And I'm in the car. I took a photograph of the officer, and that made him very indignant because I'm asking him why. Right. What did he do wrong? No, I think, uh, Cassandra, these are these are stories that if you're an African-American in this country, uh, a, a, a man or a woman, old or young, I feel like these are the kinds of things that, that you encounter on a not infrequent basis with, uh, with the police, these, these situations where uh, it seems very clear that your race or, uh, or your perceived class, perhaps, uh, is, is the motivating factor in, in the sort of uh, decision to pull somebody over, the decision to interrogate someone. Uh, Chief Holt, talk about uh, how you deal with that inside you know, the department. I, I think you would be naive anyone to be that you're you, you've been asleep for 50 years if you state <laughs> that that does not go on. Right. Uh, I have a son who I know that happens to, with him when he was driving. I know it could still happen to me right now as being the police chief, depending where I was at, how I looked, right. the time of the day. There's still a factor that's out there. But the key, what you said, that you were being harassed and you took a picture. See, the question I ask, and I ask everybody, well, what did you do to follow up on that? Uh, well, what, is, what are you supposed to do? To what you're supposed to do, that? you took a picture, uh, you got the officer's badge, you have his name. You could ask questions. You could ask, why am I being stopped? Uh, what is the purpose of me being stopped? And then you need to follow up. You need to go into the police station. You can follow a complaint. Mm-hmm. Don't think that they go unanswered. 
You could go all the way to the chief of Detroit if right. necessary. Right. You could go in and say, I want to file a complaint. I need an explanation as to why this takes place. Yeah. The worst thing is to be frustrated and not for not and follow not through do with anything. That. Yeah. 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 That's great. You're you're speaking up on the radio. I think that's tremendous. It shows you concern, you observe these things, but you need to take the next step. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Cassandra, thanks very much for that call. Let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom, yeah, well, good morning to yeah, both of you. You know, just in terms of what you just finished talking about, in terms of Detroit, each police precinct has a community relations organization. It does, that's, that's right. ran by us, the people, and the police are brought in as an adjunct. So, you know, you can get some, you can get things taken care of there. And I'd just like to say this. You know what, man? My hat is off to, as I call them, Detroit's finest or either Wayne State's finest, any of those men and women who put on a uniform, they go out there to protect and serve. They didn't, you know, they're cut from a different cloth than I am. Yeah. They, you know, they do a thankless job. Not that they go into it looking to get anything. But, I mean, you know, when you think about how we leave the house, we go out and do our business, go to our job, and we come back home. When they put that uniform on and they go out to do their job, they very well could come across some of the dregs of society. And if they come back home, they may not come back home the way they left, yeah. meaning whole, or depending on the situation, they may not come back home at all. Sure, sure. So that you danger know, is very real, and 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 I think there's no way to assert that that doesn't frame uh, the, the the sort of state of mind for uh, the officers as they as they go out each day, Tom. I mean, yeah. I think that's uh, that's a really important point. Thank you very much. All right. For calling and uh, and making that, let's go to Tom in Westland. Tom, welcome to Detroit today. Hi. Yeah, I just had a comment to make. You know, I, I have lived in the city of Detroit uh, upon occasion in my past, um, and you know, watching the news accounts of this, uh, sadly, watching a, the uh, the recent shooting of a Detroit police officer, somebody mistook him for a burglar. Um, you know, and and you know, you listen to the news. And one news report says, well, he was shot in the forehead. Another news report says, well, he was shot in the back of the head. And, you know, I think the media needs to, to spend a little bit more time not investigating what happened, but taking into consideration that this was a, a huge mistake on, on whoever it was that answered the door who mistook this, this police officer, sure. burglar. You know, I mean, burglars don't knock on your door. They right. break windows. Yeah. And it's it's a sad state of affairs when when people uh, you know use uh, an excuse like that to just come out shooting. And, yeah. I and it's not a it's not an excuse. I mean, it's not a it's not a defensible excuse, uh, Tom. I mean, it, it's a crime if you do that. There's yeah, no exactly. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. But but, but there's yeah, also there's also the flip side of what you're saying, which is that people who live in you know high crime areas of the city are desperately afraid of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, and, and I used to live I used to live at Prentice and Third, uh what, three blocks from the Wayne State campus yes, and yeah. I had I had some, some crime issues there and you know, I was concerned for my safety living in a high crime area and I I did what I felt was necessary. I bought a gun to keep in my apartment because I would come home from work at, you know, ten, eleven, one thirty, midnight and the doors to the to my apartment building would have been left open. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was residents doing. And this happened time and time again. Just coming home late at night, and the doors to 
to the alley, I lived on the first floor, were left open. Yeah. And that thing, I, living like that in a high crime area, you know, uh, inspires people to yes, buy guns to do different and, to do things. Know, than luckily, the way I that, never had yeah. I, I never had to use that gun. I, I I left the Wayne State area after living there for a couple of years. Moved in, in back to the suburbs with my family. Sold that gun. Didn't need it. Haven't owned one since. Yeah, but yeah. you know. I, no, Tom, I, have, I, have, I think I these are very. Sort of, I think these are very common concerns uh, that people have, and thanks. And thanks very much again for for adding that to the conversation. I could inject. Yeah, inject go ahead. It just a bit. I think the the key is gun ownership. I think it's fine. It's a constitutional right. But as Chief Craig and and most police chiefs would say, responsible gun ownership is the key here. Yeah. It's the responsibility that when you have a weapons when and how to use that weapon. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that that uh, even even though uh, gun ownership is legal in this country and of course in the city, I I think there are too many people who have guns, especially in the city of Detroit. I mean, I know uh, just from living here as long as I have, the, 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 you can be very surprised sometimes that someone you know who you would think lives a pretty safe life uh, is not under a lot of duress or danger, uh, nonetheless carries a gun uh, almost all the time. And, and I think that is part of the it's part of the trouble that we get ourselves into is that if you have the gun, uh, it's it's not too much of a big step to think. Well, I need this gun, or I need to use this gun, uh, and that's how we that's how we get into trouble. And that's where we go right back to responsible gun ownership, and it's going to affect how the police respond. Because just as you stated, you're surprised at how many people have weapons. The police have to keep that in mind when they get out their car that's or right. approach you. Anybody is this gun. person armed? Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Chief Tony Holt of the Wayne State Police Department, as always, thanks very much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Absolutely. Here. Up next, we're going to talk about when is it okay for police officers to use deadly force? That is also a question uh, that is on a lot of people's minds right now. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. Uh, we'll be right back on Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. We are talking this hour about the relationship between police and the community. In the first half of the show, we talked about the danger that police face every day in going out and doing their jobs, the danger that has been on display in really tragic ways here in the city of Detroit in recent months as we've seen eight police officers shot in the last eight months. Uh, now we want to change the subject a little bit to talk about the danger that police sometimes pose in the communities that they are policing. In South Carolina, a man named Walter Scott ran slowly away from a police officer who was confronting him in a field, and that police officer shot him in the back and killed him and then planted his taser on him to create the impression that Walter Scott had taken that weapon. The whole thing was caught on camera, and that officer pled guilty to murder yesterday. Over the weekend, a teenage boy hanging out with his brother, began to drive away from a police officer confronting them over noise. The police officer fired at the car as it pulled away and killed 
15-year-old Jordan Edwards. That police officer told his superiors that the car was backing into him, putting him in danger, but his body cam showed that the car was driving away and not toward him. That police officer has been fired and an investigation is pending. Police officers are put in powers positions of really extreme power, the power to take a life if necessary, but when is it necessary to use deadly force? When is it justified? And how do police officers balance the inherent risks of the job with the obligation to protect themselves? We have seen this question come up many, many times in the recent past as we are becoming more familiar with the phenomenon of police dealing with African-Americans, young African-Americans, old African-Americans, African-American males in particular in ways that are inappropriate and often are deadly. Uh, Joining us now to talk about this balance between when police use deadly force and when is it justified, when is it not, and the role that race plays in those decisions is Carl Taylor, who is a professor of sociology at Michigan State University. Professor Taylor, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me back. Uh, So uh, I'm sure you saw what we saw happen in Texas uh, this weekend, and uh, you're familiar with the, the, the Walter Scott case in South Carolina, which has gone on for a long time. Actually concludes now with a guilty plea of murder. None of this seems to be going away, though. This seems to be something that we are... I, I think it's something we're seeing more frequently. It may not be happening more frequently. It just may be that we're more aware because uh, these things are caught on camera. Uh, but but talk about that line. You have done a lot of work on police, community relations. Uh, police seem to be crossing that line in a way with African-Americans that just, uh, that just is indefensible in, in many, many cases. Well, it certainly uh, is a different day. I believe, as you pointed out, I think the technology plays a significant role because it puts us all in touch with what's taking place anywhere, and particularly in America. We're looking at other communities and their problems, and then we have our own problems. The police have a uh, huge responsibility um, that we're asking them to carry, and they are human. But the fact is that the word is professionalism and good training, and then the reality is that they're liable to make mistakes, and you cannot ignore the fact that race is an issue in this society, and a lot of people don't want to talk about it. But it's very difficult and for the officers, I think, that many times we get mixed up, uh, machismo, um, you know, thinking, being tough, and on quick to draw, and how good you are with a gun is also have to be compared to how well you are in your mental state. Uh, mental health is very important, and I'm not calling anyone uh, disturbed, but sure. some people cannot handle that power. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these these uh, these incidents that we've seen have have sparked a lot of discussion about those relationships. They've sparked a movement, uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, which is still working, I think, quite diligently to bring attention to the issue and reframe uh, the questions in terms of what the solutions might be. Uh, Talk about what the solutions to this are from your chair outside of the idea of solving racism, right? I mean, I don't think any of us believes that that's a reasonable uh, 
uh, goal to set that that there won't be racial bias in this society. But um, but how do you get to a place where that racial bias doesn't play the role that it is this deadly role uh, for for African Americans at the hands of the police? Well, that is a, a very tough question, and you know, I, I was listening earlier, and you had uh, Chief Holdon from yeah. Wayne State, who I've worked with in the past a great deal and have uh, a great deal of respect for. You're absolutely correct is that we're going to be dealing with racism, I think, unfortunately, for a long time, if not forever. Uh, but I think that we're looking at what I'm going to communities, we're looking at having a dialogue that's ongoing and not crisis-oriented. You know, in other words, when someone is shot and then you do have black lives or other groups, social activists, who rightfully are protesting, we have kind of... Uh, Americans love to fix things very quickly. Yes. Put them in a microwave. <laughs> this has to be an ongoing process. This has to happen in the homes of uh, many people. And it's not about uh, do you like people. Uh, or that you tolerate people. It's The training has to be in the homes and in the departments. Do you respect people? Yeah. You have to respect those that you may not agree with, and that training is professional. So I think they, that we haven't done that. It's ongoing. What happens is that many times we cover our tails uh, in these agencies, uh, government, uh, every place. We cover our tail, and by that I mean we bring in an expert, and then we have a one-day session, or either we may map out something over the whole year. But the reality is that we got to get down to the nitty-gritty and get into understanding what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. We have to give the police the right tools. But we, again, I go back to just because you can shoot a gun well at a target, what's in your head? Right. And also, what's in your heart? Uh, it's very hard to police somebody if you hate them. You, you do not see them as citizens or that they are equal as human beings. And that sometimes is not detected the way it should be because in the training, and I've taught in police academy, the training is very quick initially that they go through. I, when I say very quick, it's, it's, you know, how many hours and with people slashing budgets and they cut back on that type of training. Sure. I would say that that is the most important training is this individual officer been trained, and are they mentally stable to take this type of work? That doesn't mean they're unstable for anything else, but some people just can't handle the power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Carl Taylor. He's a professor of sociology at Michigan State University. We are talking about uh, when police officers use deadly force. We have seen many incidents in the last few years, more incidents than we were probably aware of before in which police have used that deadly force in instances against African-Americans where it was clear the victims were not really doing anything that justified the police officer's actions. Uh, when is that line okay to cross? When is it okay for police to use deadly force? How do we get to a space where more police seem to understand where that line is between uh, not using deadly force and deciding to do it? Uh, how do we account for race in that equation in a society where Race still means an awful lot in terms of the way people see each other, in terms of the way people see situations. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 
313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Let's go to Emily in Centerline. Emily, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, you said um, people get powers and people can't handle it, but I think it's really important um, that we're holding everyone accountable. Um, I think that when we don't, I think that using body cams can be really helpful um, for the citizens as well as the office, excuse me, as well as the officers. Um, by using the body cams and holding officers accountable, we'll have the real footage of what happened and be able to investigate properly to really know what's going on. Yeah. Um, I think that without the accountability, some people can't handle the power, and then not, not all officers make good decisions all the time. And I want to say that I absolutely support the people that are protecting the citizens, but in a certain cases that we've seen, that's not always the case. Yeah, yeah, Emily, that's a that's a great point. Thank you for calling and making it, uh, Carl Taylor. This idea of accountability is, I think, enhanced by body cams, and we saw in the case of uh, this 15-year-old who was shot in Texas right. over the weekend that the body cam exposed the police officer as a liar. I mean, that's something that we wouldn't have had. Uh, five or ten, 10 years ago, but you still need, I think, a culture of accountability to uh, to accompany this technology. And I, and I worry that in in some places, in some departments, that culture is not quite there yet. Absolutely. I think that what happened in Texas is a prime example of that. But also, I would go back to, uh, you have to understand that young people in the public because of this technology, they are reminded constantly not only of what just happened yesterday or this past weekend, but what happened. For example, what happened to Errol Gardner, or was the Errol Gardner in uh-huh. New York, yeah. when he was saying that he couldn't breathe. Well, the culture came back, the union, and I know I'm going to upset people, but the fact is that the culture is just like a family. Whatever those parents say has a lot of impact on the children. What the leadership police departments says in this nation has a great impact on um, the general population of police. Yes. So when you come back and the union is wearing shirts saying, I mean, I just can't believe it, but saying that if you can talk, you can breathe. Right. And this man was murdered like a snuff movie in front of the world. And then we hear, and whether it's true or not, the rumors, and with this fake news or no news or whatever you want to call it, I, what I understand, the, the officer was not punished. He was actually promoted. Yeah. And then you wear a shirt that if you can talk, you can breathe. Well, that type of insensitivity uh, puts a police chief in a bad position, puts a mayor in a bad position. But what police leaders need to understand, it places them in a bad position. They have to be professional. They're trained, and their job is very tough, and we respect that. And there are bad players out there, and there are times that they can't avoid. They have to protect themselves. No one is not saying, "I, I support that. Totally. The fact is that a lot of unprofessionalism and just straight out untruths, lies are taking place. And it also overlaps into the justice system where judges, uh, it's just politics. They're afraid to come down on the police or slap them on the hand. So that's where we have a problem. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the line between deadly and not deadly force among police officers. And we want to hear more from you. Stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019. Fran in Redford, Yodi and Ypsilanti. We will get to you when we get back. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for listening in. My guest is Carl Taylor, professor of sociology at Michigan State University. We are talking about the recent spate of incidents in which police use deadly force against people who don't seem to be doing anything that justifies that deadly force. That is happening, of course, more frequently in front of our eyes than it used to, as people have cell phone cams that they're taking pictures or video of this of. And we're also seeing it a little more because of the body cams that police officers are wearing. We also are seeing that so often in these cases, it's African-Americans who are the victims of this police excessive force. Uh, What does that mean? What does that tell us about what we need to be doing in this society to sort of uh, change the way that our communities are policed? Give us a call if you want to join the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we will try to work your comments into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Yodit and Ypsilanti. Welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. <clears throat> Thank you for taking my call. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to try to be brief. I have a couple of comments. One is um, Sean King, a New York Daily Writer activist, um, uh, recently posted 25 reasonable um, solutions that we could consider. And a few of them tie to what you and your guests have been talking to. Mm-hmm. One of them is considering the, the need to radically diversify American police departments. Sure. Yeah. The other is, to your guest point, requiring that American police have more training than cosmetologists. They actually <laughs> today do not. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting what, that he talked about was this um, giving uh, officers other weapons besides guns to use in these situations. Again, to your guest point, that <clears throat> when you're a carpenter, everything's a nail, right? So sure. if you if all you have is a gun, um, then that's what you're going to use. And it includes mental health training and reducing uh, less policing in communities of color. And we could start by decriminalizing addiction and petty offenses, yeah. which happen to be the reason why often... Uh, you know, police are showing up. And then, yeah, the need for um, racial bias. So anyway, I encourage, you know, um, listeners to check out these solutions. They're actually, again, to your caller's point, they're proactive. They're things we can do. And our reactionary response, right, the protests, et cetera, have these, like, you know, high peaks of energy. And then I think many of us feel like, well, what are we doing that's actually... We don't get to. That's absolutely true. We don't often get to that that policy forming stage where we say, this is how we're going to do it differently. This is how we're going to try to uh, ensure that this doesn't keep keep happening. So I'm glad you called and uh, and pointed out that article. Sean King is, of course, a columnist for the New York Daily News, as she pointed out, and you can find his work at their website. Uh, Thank you very much, Yodit, for the call. Let's go to Annette and Troy. 
Annette, welcome Hi. to Detroit Today. Yes. Hi, fantastic show, great topic. Um, I just wanted, uh, I have a few general comments. Um, I am an attorney, so I deal a lot with individuals who are being charged with resisting and obstructing police officers based upon this, um, I guess for the back, lack of way I can describe what I'm seeing is lack of impulse control on both ends. This is a scenario, and, and we're talking about culture and, and you know, what happens in the home and the parents and, and whatnot. I love the analogies that your guys are using. Um, I mean, it's really, it really plays into a whole big picture here. We have officers, in my experience that I'm dealing with, that range in experience from guys who are fresh on the beat to those who are now detectives in charge and have worked their way up through the, um, the ranks of the police force. Um, and they've left the road patrol scenario. But what I'm seeing more often is that the old timers, for lack of a better way of explaining it, have had to go through like extensive training to be on the force. Now what's happening is that you see a lot of things in counties where you can be fresh out of high school and not with any type of degree or life experience, and you are being allowed to work in county jails. You are allowed to be working your way through the system up in the ranks. Right. So there's real, there's really no educational training of these police officers regarding um, life experience, um, unless they've been on the force for you know 20 plus years. But by then they're bitter. By then they have um, they have more knowledge than you could ever imagine. That you know, and they are pushing themselves onto these individuals. Yeah. But yeah. at the same token, we are a culture in the United States, and I've traveled extensively around the uh, around the world, so I can really say that I've seen a huge difference between the mindset of Americans and the mindset of others. Oh, um, we are people who have or who expect immediate results. We are people who expect um, a level of entitlement, and I'm not talking about, like, social projects. That's not the level of entitlement I'm thinking. Um, but people do not want to stop, pause, and think from A to Z on any issue yeah, that's long, very... enough to make, long enough to make good decisions for themselves. When I'm going through police reports and I'm talking to my clients, I'm like, okay, so walk me through how you were thinking in this situation, and we never get past C. Yeah. Um, so people automatically assume things. And, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a white woman. So can I say that I've had the same life experience as a lot of my clients? No, but I stop and I pay attention and I listen to what they're telling me. And I, and I think I have more empathy and compassion than most people um, that I'm dealing with in the criminal justice system. So yeah. I'm watching what's happening on these news reports. I'm watch- and I've been listening to the commentary the last couple of days on on uh, your radio stations and listening to the stories because we're really looking at a two-year mark, right? And we, we've hit the anniversary of Freddie Gray. Sure. We're listening to all these stories coming out of Baltimore. I'm listening to what's happening in Louisiana and around the country, and none of this has changed. People talk about we need to change racism. Well, you know what? At the end of the day, none of that's going to – we can't change the inherent bigotry that people have been raised with, have been hiding – and with this huge wave that's happened in the last two years, what we see is that those who have held themselves quiet in the woodwork are now um, feeling empowered We're to speak up because sure. we have people in power who now are saying things that for the longest amount of time were shameful. <laughs> yeah, right. um, and now, now you can just get away it. with it. That's right. Yeah. Annette, thank you and, very I mean, much. But for... that's also what's happening in police forces. Yeah. Those are people in power and government. 
I mean, it's from the top yeah. down. Matt, and thank so you. you expect- uh, th- those are great points, and thank you very much for, for calling and making them. Uh, Dr. Taylor, w- w- what she's getting to there is this notion of change, that uh, what are the things we can sort of tinker with, uh, even in the margins, to, to, to be able to make this look different. Yodit uh, from Ypsilanti called uh, earlier and made that same kind of point about what we could change. What is holding us back, I guess, is is the question. Uh, now that we're seeing this so frequently, how come we're not moving moving faster? Because we don't have any teeth in, in the leadership in this nation, uh, quite frankly. And I'm speaking both of in the homes. When I say teeth, we're not getting the signals and the training and the insistence. And my brother and I, who you know well, um, you know, there were certain things that were expected from us, not only inside that house on the west side of Detroit, but also in our community. This is what you do, and this is what you don't do. And that was reinforced. The same thing has to happen with the police departments. Defending bad behavior or when people get shot and it's a bad shooting, uh, you still stand up and protect those people. Then you're very much part of the problem. That has to train and change. Police chiefs have to demand and show that you will be held accountable yeah. if you're wrong and not go along with the, you know, the, what the, the sin is. I think the same thing holds true to a union leadership. That's not what we are seeing. We have excuses. We have rationalizations. And both sides need to change. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's quickly uh, take one more call before we run out of time here. Jennifer in uh, Detroit, I've got about a minute left, but I wanted to get you on. You there, Jennifer? Uh, yes. I'd just like to make a quick comment uh-huh. on people's reaction when they have contact with the police. It's been my experience. I don't care whether you're white, black, uh, yellow, or uh-huh. red. Uh-huh. When you, when you have a contact with a police person for any reason, treat him like your very best friend. Guaranteed it works. Yeah. You'll uh, end up... Uh, Jennifer, I, I, I appreciate that. We're, we're, we're short on time, but, uh, but Dr. Taylor, uh, I, I appreciate what she's saying. The problem is sometimes we see that even when you're not doing anything, uh, the, the police reaction. I mean, some of these videos show people being cooperative and then being brutalized. Right, absolutely. So I think that's the problem again. That person, how do they get through the training? And that's many times a mental health issue. They need the abuse of a power. They can't handle it. The word is professionalism. Yes. All right, Dr. Carl Carl Taylor, professor of sociology at Michigan State University, as always, thank you for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, All right, uh, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. See you tomorrow.